0: the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and this is the final episode of the four-part series we've been doing this month, Black History Month, celebrating black women. I don't know about you, but I'm truly sad to see this series end. The four women I've had the honor of hosting and learning from this month are truly four of my favorite humans. If you don't already, go follow them on Instagram so you can continue to learn from their voices. With just four episodes, we have barely scratched the surface in our celebration of black women, from the kitchen to the White House. So my hope is that with this series, it won't be an end to your learning, but rather a starting place to continue learning about the contributions of black women and listening to their voices every month of the year. In this final episode, I'm once again joined by Marcy Elvis Walker from Black Coffee with White Friends and Mockingbird History Lessons, And special guests, author and therapist Tasha Hunter, and historian Letty Shumate from Sincerely Letty. Unfortunately, Patricia's schedule wouldn't allow her to join us for this episode. In this conversation, we continue our discussion about Black women throughout our history, as we focus on Black women as our first ladies of democracy. From Fannie Lou Hamer to Michelle Obama to Kamala Harris. We discuss the role of black women in the White House and how America has typecast the roles they can and cannot play in our democracy. But as we share in this episode, once again, black women have broken through the typecasting and plotted their own freedom with their history of political rebellion and rising above the status quo. So settle in, grab a cup of coffee as we listen to the voices of black women as they share their experiences and those of their ancestors. Ladies, welcome back to the Her Story Speaks podcast. This is our last conversation in this four part series we've had this month. And I'm just honored to have the three of you back again today. Patricia's not joining us, but we have Letty, Marcy, and Tasha. And let's just go around and do quick intros again in case anybody was late, is late to the party and doesn't know who everybody is. Do you want to start, Letty?
1: Sure. Yep, I'm Letty Shoemate. I'm a historian, anti-racism educator, podcast host, Black woman, and I'm just excited to be here.
2: I'm a Marcy Alvis Walker. I'm a writer. I have two platforms. One is Black Coffee White Friends, and one is Mockingbird History Lessons. And super excited to be here.
3: Hey, I'm Tasha Hunter, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker, author and soon-to-be podcaster. Yay! When we speak, that'll be out March the 1st. Thank you for having me, and I feel like I'm with my sisters.
0: I'm glad to have you guys back, and I will note that, Tasha, you will be the first interview story that we share on this podcast um, after this one wraps up, so my listeners will be able to get a better idea of who you are and your story and then start listening to your podcast, so... Let's go ahead, we're gonna dive right in today. Each week we've been talking about stereotypes of black women, black women that broke those stereotypes. So today we're gonna talk a little bit about black women as our first ladies of democracy. We're gonna talk about that typecast of the roles of black women and the black women that have broken out of those roles. And we're also gonna look a little bit about the role of black women in diet culture and in the White House. So to start off, we're going to hand it over to historian Letty again, and she's going to tell us a little bit about, fa- excuse me, a little bit about Fannie Lou Hamer. Last week, three of you ladies said that Fannie Lou Hamer was your shiro, and admittedly, I, sorry to say, of course, with our American history lessons in school, I did not know a lot about her. So this last week, I've been reading and learning, and I can't think of a better way to start off this conversation than to share a little bit about her story with listeners. So Letty, we'll let you take it from here.
1: Cool. Yeah. So uh, Fannie Wu Hamer, um, well, Fannie Wu Townsend Hamer, that's her technically her full name. If I can look her up in some history books, if they want to tell the right history, Um, she was born in Montgomery County, Mississippi in October 1917. And her parents were sharecroppers. And uh, this was very, very common in Mississippi during the time, especially in the Mississippi Delta, really the entire South. So there's that. Uh, <laughs> but she got married in 1944. Whenever she was either 11 or 12, she actually did not go to school anymore because she had to work she had to help. And that's something that I want people to understand whenever you learn more about who Fannie Lou Hamer was and how much she did. Also something else about Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, she being raised in Mississippi saw the immense racism, the immense white supremacy, the immense violence, emotional, mental, and especially physical violence against Black people. Uh, She actually received Unwantingly, a hysterectomy in 1961 by a mm-hmm. white doctor this was often something that happened to black women and i'm going to repeat this this was not her consent like she was going under surgery to r- remove a tumor to have a tumor removed and then she comes mm-hmm. out of surgery now she's sterilized and people may hear stories like this and think oh but it just happened to her no not just happened to her. It happened to many black people. I have two second cousins that it happened to as well. So it's like, you know, this stuff hits close to home. And so I like to include this whenever I'm talking about history so people know that it's not just what you read in a book, it's what people actually experience and people that know people who are living with this, right? And so Fannie Lou Hamer, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit because of the sake of how I want this story to go, but she founded the Freedom Farm Cooperative. I'll be abbreviating it as FFC. And this was basically just a community-based like rural and economic type of project really benefited the socioeconomic needs of black people. So between 1967 and 1976, the FFC provided healthcare, employment, access to healthy foods, education, things, things like that. And whenever people found out about the FFC, it was highly received by many in the Black community. The thing that I want people to understand about this is what it meant for the Black community, right? Mm -hmm. Like what it meant to do something like that in 1967. And so members of the FFC were mainly displaced like land or or like farm workers. And they were the ones who were brushed aside because agriculture changed, needs changed. And you did not just have people who were able to be, how do I put this? I don't, I don't wanna say able to be sharecroppers, <laughs> but what I mean is like able to govern themselves and to work for themselves. Another mm-hmm. reason for this though is because Often what happened in the South is white people who own these plantations and still own black people could decide when they wanted to take this away from black people. So just because you were a sharecropper did not mean that you just had complete rights over your land. That's that's not what it meant. And I'm going to get to that story with um, Fannie Woo Hamer because it actually happened to her. So. Um, Something else, though, about the uh, Freedom Farmer Cooperative is today a lot of urban community farmers like draw from this legacy actually, and I'm reading this actually this part uh, directly from a website about this. I'm gonna read it just verbatim. While the media has often focused on white members of the urban food justice sovereignty movements, both have a strong Black American contingent who draw on generations of farming knowledge and a recognition that. The existing power structure has little stake in our well being. In 1973, FFC had 600 acres in crop production. 300 families were recipients of animals from the pig bank and 70 families were living in the organization's low-income affordable housing. They distributed scholarships to local high school students to attend college and were able to support the start of several Black businesses. So this wasn't even just about farming and food. This was about food and safety and what food meant for the Black community, right? Like how this actually was something that was trying to disrupt the systemic racism. That, we still see happening today. Fannie Lou Hamer's life and her work was very intertwined uh, with the strategy of raising food and the mainstream civil rights movement, which she was heavily involved with. So she was a delegate for the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, also known as the MFDP. And she was very outspoken in this. This was the opposite of the then white Democratic Party, because they're like, y'all aren't giving us what we need. So we're going to do our own thing and demand our rights and things like this. So now, mind you, this started really started in like 1962. She had to become a full-time activist, so to speak, and field organizer for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. After losing her job and her home though, because she refused to withdraw her application to vote. So people look at Fannie Lou Hamer and they're like, wow, like she always spoke up. And I'm like, right, but she literally almost died several times and was sexually assaulted and was beat to almost death. I want to read this trigger warning for people who are listening. So SNCC held a mass meeting. Okay, in Montgomery County, Mississippi, I think the year for this, I'm sorry, was 1961 or 62. Um, But they held a mass meeting in Montgomery County, Mississippi about black people registering to vote. So when they asked for people to volunteer to go and demonstrate, Fannie Lou Hamer was among people to raise her hand. Like she immediately was like, oh, yes, me. I'm definitely going to go down to the courthouse the following day. And now I'm going to read actually verbatim what Fannie Lou Hamer said during a speech about this actual encounter she had whenever she was arrested. So she said, I guess if I'd had any sense, I would have been a little scared. But what was the point of being scared? The only thing they could do to me was kill me. And it seemed like they've been trying to do that a little bit at a time ever since I could remember. Well, there was 18 of us who went down to the courthouse that day and all of us were arrested. Police said the bus was painted the wrong color, said it was too yellow. After I got bailed out, I went back to the plantation where Pap, Pap was her husband. Pap and I had lived for 18 years. My oldest girl met me and told me that Mr. Marlowe, the plantation owner, was mad and raising sand. He had heard that I had tried to register to vote. That night he called on us and said, we're not gonna have this in Mississippi and you will have to withdraw. I am looking for your answer, yay or nay. I just look. He said, I will give you until tomorrow morning and if you don't withdraw, you will have to leave. If you do go withdraw, it's only how I feel. You might still have to leave. So I left that same night. Pat had to stay on till work on the plantation was through. 10 days later, they fired into Mrs. Tucker's house where, where I was staying. They also shot two girls at Mr. Cecil's. That was a rough winter. I hadn't a chance to do any canning before I got kicked off, so I didn't have hardly anything to eat. I always can more than my family can use because there's always people who don't have enough. That winter was bad, though. Pap couldn't get a job because everybody knew that he was my husband. We made it on through, though. I reckon the most horrible experience I've had was in June of 1963. I was arrested along with several others in Winona, Mississippi. That's in Montgomery County, the county where I was born. I was carried to a cell and locked up with Uvester Simpson. I began to hear the sound of wicks and I could hear people screaming. After then, the state highway patrolman came and carried me out of the cell into another cell where there were two Negro prisoners. The patrolman gave the first Negro a long blackjack that was heavy. For people who don't know what a blackjack is, a blackjack is a type of club that was used especially by police officers that time. Still used by police officers. Okay. It was loaded with something and they had me lay down on the bunk with my face down and I was beat. I was beat by the first one till he gave out. Then the patrolman ordered the other man to take the blackjack and he began to beat. After I got out of jail, half dead, I found out that Medgar Evers had been shot down in his own yard. So yeah, this was 1963. Last week, I mentioned the book At the Dark End of the Street by Danielle McGuire. She actually talks about this verbatim in this book as well. And she also talks about June Johnson. Ah, Marcy's holding up her book. So we had the same book. And she basically recounts the same thing just in more detail. And it's the history of Fannie Lou Hamer like this, though, that people may think, why do you read this? I read that because remember, you read the things about how she started this FFC for people to have Food in the black community in the same place where she was almost brutalized to death in the same place where she could have gotten she could have gotten arrested again her family could have been killed but she did it anyway she did it anyway right and she did it because even after sharecropping was dying down so to speak even after the civil rights act even after the voting rights act even after all the work she did with SNCC and everything to stand up for black people it still did not get Black people what they needed in the Black community. And so that's why Fannie Lou Hamer is someone that I will always say is a shero for me because she could have easily just been like, nah, I think I'm just going to go to the North. I'm just going to go somewhere else. But she stayed. She stayed there. And I think that that speaks a lot, not just to farming and like being Black. I think it speaks really to Black womanhood as well. And the the narrative of Black womanhood that's often left out in the history books and things like that, because you read about SNCC and you read about all these things. And I'm like, yeah, but Fannie Lou Hamer was an integral voice in SNCC in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta, to be exact. There's some history about her. And if people want to know more about Fannie Lou Hamer and details of her life, I encourage you to Google and find it out. Uh, A really good website is anything that ends in .org or .edu whenever it comes to things like this. I always want to put that out there too.
0: I plan to put a lot of links about her in the show notes because there's so much. I have been shocked this week. And even that inner quote that you read, like I was listening yesterday to a live interview that she gave sharing that whole horrific experience in the jail. And I think people need to listen to that and hear her voice and words. And so, Marcy, how this relates back to what we've been talking about, one, the Jemima Code was trying to oppress Black women's voices, and Fannie Lou Hamer kept rising above that. But then also the food is huge. Food is political, and especially in the African-American culture it is. One thing I'm going to read quick, Marcy, then I'm going to turn it over to you in an article I was reading with about Fannie Lou Hamer it says the white power structures of the Jim Crow South Hamer explained were controlling African Americans through the threat of starvation where a couple of years ago white people were shooting at Negroes trying to register to vote now they say go ahead and register then you'll just starve she was known to say so as long as she had a pig and a garden she could survive Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. take it from there Marcy with what you want to share about her that story or leading into food wherever you want to go with this
2: well, first of all i'm I'm so grateful to have Letty along with us and I'm so grateful to have Tasha along with us um, as as black women to engage in this story. I think the way that it relates for me to what we're talking about with the Jemima Code is that there's this weird kind of northern Kind of lost cause. You know, like the Southern lost cause is that the South didn't lose the war. But the Northern lost cause is that white peoples are the ones who save Black people, that white people are the ones who made the Civil Rights Acts possible. But that's not what was happening. And another part of her story is that No one who was in government wanted her story to be told. They did not want white America to hear this story. What they wanted was... For white Americans to see black people protesting and to believe that there was something wrong with their protesting, that there was something dangerous in their protesting, that they needed to just simply comply with laws that were unjust in order to keep the peace and to keep order. What happened with Fannie Lou Hamer was that she went along with um, a group of people to testify to what was happening and they were actually going to be filmed and lbj wasn't worried president johnson wasn't worried about martin luther king testifying because people have heard him before and people already decided whether they were going to believe him or not and most of america hello americans most america did not believe dr king they were not vibing with his dream most americans thought he was causing trouble causing trouble and most of those americans who believed that were christians tithing baptized praise worshiping bible thumping christians which is why you know he wrote letter from a birmingham jail that that's what that's all about and wrote pretty much everything else that he wrote when he was talking to the white church so there's a reason that certain pastors came down from the north When they saw um, Bloody Sunday, they came down when they saw things on TV, when they saw the violence and they they heard about the letter they heard the letter. There's a reason that there were rabbis and white pastors and priests who came down and not just, you know, write the white regular Joe. It was because Martin Luther King's message was for the church. And so when Fannie Lou Hamer was, I guess it's, is it Congress that she went to? Letty can clarify that. When she was testifying, what was that? Congress. Congress. Uh huh. LBJ wasn't worried about Dr. King. He was a irate Negro who just couldn't keep his place and couldn't keep his mouth shut. And there were a lot of white Americans who wanted whiteness to be preserved and for them not to have to think about these things, right? And that if black people could just lift themselves up, even with these shackles, if they could just lift themselves up, even with Jim Crow around their neck, if they could lift themselves up, even if their sons were swinging in trees, we'd all just be better if they just didn't say anything, just didn't stir it up. So... He was really worried about Fannie Lou Hamer because that was the voice of a Black woman who had been beat in a prison, right? And he knew white folks are going to feel some kind of way about that. And I'm going to have to do something about that. So when people say the LBJ was a great president because he signed the Civil Rights Act. Well, first of all, he was extremely racist and used racial slurs all the time in the White House. It's well documented. He called Dr. King the N-word. He called the the Civil Rights Act the the N-act. So you have this president who didn't want to go down in the books being talked about as a racist, which is quite different than wanting to be an anti-racist. He didn't want to be anti-racist. He just didn't want the history books to write him down as being racist. That's what it was. And sure, there's conflict in that. I'm not going to try to paint this man in one note. There's conflict in it. But the whiteness took over wherever he may have felt some sort of kind of compassion or some sort of kind of anti-racist notion. Whiteness in the end won every single time. So what he did when Fannie Lou Hamer was speaking is he, he didn't air that live. He didn't want people to hear her testimony. He didn't want her voice in American homes. He did not want white women in their kitchens with their aprons and their girl probably working there right beside them to hear this woman's testimony. All the other testimonies were live, but not hers, but still it got out. And people did exactly what he thought. People responded to that story. It meant something to them. And so right now, when people are lining up around the block to see Michelle Obama, because she told some truths in her book, (laughs) that's basically if Fannie Lou Hamer would have written a book white folks would have been buying it off the shelves they would have been buying it off the shelves following her instagram feed all of that because there's nothing that white mothers respond especially up in the north respond more to than some black woman's pain and that's the truth and it's sad that that's the truth i mean on one hand i'm glad for anyone to get woke or to, to have an, a moment, or have a clarity. I don't wanna tell anyone how that should happen, but I do want people to, to push further in and say, when you have that moment, if you're a white woman and you saw George Floyd die right before your eyes, or you heard the cries of people say her name with Rihanna Taylor, or, tamar rice or whoever name a person but what i want you to do is to press for into that and go why did it take the pain for me to listen you know why did it take the pain why when michelle obama was in the white house i wasn't really checking for her like that and when they were calling her um beastly things because yes white folks white Folks who were working beside her husband in Congress were calling this woman beastly things because of her body, because of how she was a Black woman. She wasn't like kind of Black. She was Black. How they were questioning her her womanhood, her validity, her... Wonderfulness because she was a Black woman. She, she didn't look like Melania or Jackie O or Nancy Reagan. So they questioned her in the same way that they're doing right now with Kamala. And I need y'all to understand that it is no mistake that Trump's lawyers with this last impeachment trial, used Kamala as a reason for his insurrection. He used a Black woman standing up for Black people <laughs> as a reason that it was okay for him to, for our president, a white man, a white president, to send people to Congress to under the threat of violence. So if you were sitting there going, what is he talking about, Kamala? Is he talking about Black Lives Matter? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And it's not new. So we do see this line, this this behavior. And it's really, I'm going to say one more thing, it's really violent the way that we express our feelings about Black womanhood in anywhere near politics whiteness gets very violent with that and so even when certain presidents had black requested that certain maids certain cooks be sent away and they brought in their own black cooks and chefs because they preferred their cooking the way that the newspapers reported that switch was that well he likes simple food he doesn't like the French food. He likes simple food. The simple food of, it was to downplay suddenly the food that he likes. Well, it's because he's common. And he likes common food. So he needs a common person to come and cook it. I'm here to tell you a, a French chef can cook anything. They could cook some common stuff if that were it, but it wasn't common. They were making meals <laughs> and they weren't common meals, but because they were coming from the hands of a black woman in the white house, they had to Dethrone or pluck her power in some way by saying, Well, what she was doing was simple, and that's why she's there, not because she was there, because she was gifted and powerful and as capable as a Frank Chef. It's very interesting to me how we respond to political power of Black of black women, that it, it usually is met, even when it's in the kitchen, as some sort of threat that needs to be explained. I don't know anyone who has less power in Congress than the First Lady, really, maybe aside from Hillary, who wanted to be in politics. But the First Lady, she's not making law. She's not voting on things any more than a regular citizen. And yet, Michelle Obama was quite threatening to many a white people because she was in the White House.
0: Tasha, do you want to talk
3: on that? I wanted to kind of chime in on a couple of things, though, that they both talked about bringing in black folks to, to cook. And I was so, not that I didn't know this, but I... The reminder, these presidents, they brought in the slaves so they didn't have to pay (laughs) the kitchen staff. Then when I read that, I thought, for sure, they're not paying, even when they did pay us to do their cooking and all the things in the kitchen, to cook that common food, as Mm -hmm. you said, Marcy. You know they weren't paying us what they were paying the French chefs, <laughs> So they were still getting over on all of that good cooking that they preferred. And so stuck out to me. And just the ways in which we continue to be used in all the ways by the presidents and, and even by the presidents that seem to be liberal or seem to be on our side. It's interesting the ways in which the history books tell certain stories. And then I wanted to go back to it for just a minute, talking about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, just for a hot minute. In creating the Freedom Farm Cooperative, FCC, she literally provided a blueprint for this is how we take care of our own. And she she didn't have all the quote unquote credentials. She didn't have all the education. She didn't have all the the resources. And yet, in still with what she was given, in my opinion, just innately by God, she created a perfect blueprint Let me show you how we're going to take care of our children, how we're going to do job training, how we're going to teach, you know, do head start and and education and provide food and all of these things. We're going to provide the meat. We're going to provide the vegetables. We're going to grow our own. We don't need you. We've got it. In reading about the FCC, I thought, and here's this woman who was beaten and arrested and threatened and shut down and they tried to silence her and and then she was shot and all of these things. And I always go back, I don't know if you guys know that, I always go back in time and I'm thinking, since the beginning, since they stole us from our own land and enslaved us, they've always used violence to silence us. And that continues. So when I hear you talk about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and, and all of the ones that have died, we all know the names. They've always used violence. It is literally the only thing that they have. I guess I don't want to get too caught up in that, but she gave us a blueprint and I sure wish that we all could have picked that blueprint up and done more with it because she gave it to us. She showed us how.
0: Marcy, did you want to apply to that? I see you want to say something.
2: Yeah, I do. Yeah. I talked about there was the lost cause of the South, but there's also this lost cause of this of the north that's nonsense, a nonsense history that there's this white savior of the whole civil rights movement. And usually that's attached to a president or it's attached to a bill being passed or an act being passed. But really those acts and bills did not give us equality. It just made the equality legal. That's it. Didn't give it to us. Wow. And they didn't give it because that was just a good thing to do. <laughs> you know, it was usually it was um, with Lincoln. The whole Emancipation Proclamation was all about the war, it had nothing to do with Black people. And he was terrified of Black people and thought they should go to Africa and that they weren't fit for American society. And then you have LBJ, who's calling Black folks to inward, right and left, and you have J of k doing the same thing. We have like this history of white maleness that can decide what part of blackness is useful to them and what part is not. But what they're not realizing is that we're integrated in our living because they set it up that way. So we're in the homes. We are in Thomas Jefferson, we're in the bedroom. We are in the conversation listening. I know black women out there will understand this. There's always a woman sitting in the window on the block who's listening <laughs> to every conversation that's going on, right? And no one thinks she's listening, but she she's the person that the police need to go to if they want to know something. She's, she can tell you everything that's happened that day and, you know, 20 years ago, because she's been sitting in that same window watching uh, on the show 227. It's, I forget her name. I think it was Wanda. I'm not sure, but she's sitting in the window and she is commentating on everything. She's not going to give you the tea unless you ask for it, but she is commentating and and she's taking note of everything. And that was what enslaved women inside the house were doing, which brings me to Mumbet's story, which is one of my favorites because you have this woman. So there's this enslaved woman. And she's serving, this is back in before the founding of the constitution. I won't say founding of the country because the country had been founded by its indigenous people, but the founding of our democracy and the founding of the constitution, all that. And this is in a time of enlightenment and all these white people of the house are talking about who has rights and who has a soul? And this is the common conversation of civilized folks of that time, of Jefferson's time, of Washington's time. They are enlightened and they're trying to decide, okay, we know that white people are the best people, but where do I, where does everyone else fall and who has rights and who doesn't? And this was the common conversation and you had Many enslaved people inside the house or or wherever they were overhearing this conversation going, wait, but I'm human. I'm human and plotting their own freedom and going for it, rebelling against it. No one that there was no time that there wasn't black people rebelling for their freedom. Black Lives Matter has always been that has always been a movement. And I just wish people understood that. There was never a time that we did not know that our lives matter, never. And so you have Elizabeth Freeman, Mumbat. And she is, I just love her. I just imagine her like Wanda. She's serving the potatoes at this party, this dinner party, and these white dignitaries are talking about the Bill of Rights. And she's listening. She is listening. And just like those women who knew all the recipes, but they couldn't read or write, and they memorized all the recipes, she's remembering every single point of this Bill of Rights. And she takes that recipe that she's kind of putting together in her head and she sues for her freedom and she wins. And not only does she win, she even gets a little bit of reparations out of it. And I'm just like, what? But you, we don't learn these stories. We don't learn these stories about these people in our history books we, because it's kind of like with Fannie Lou Hamer. It's almost as if. It's actually how it actually happened. The people who were writing the textbooks decided how they were going to paint the story. And they were going to paint the story that there were a couple of Black people who wanted freedom, but all the rest of them were saved by white people. So you had Harriet Tubman and you have Frederick Douglass and maybe Sojourner Truth. You might learn about her, but they weren't the only ones. Far from it. And... I think that kids don't know about Fannie Lou Hamer or they don't know about Elizabeth Freeman and that little black children have to sit in the classroom and only hear about laws that were passed on their behalf and not about people who were pressing in to this idea of who gets to be free, who gets to be part of this perfect union, who is included in the we of the we are the people that they were that they don't get to see that they were ancestors who have been pressing into that from the beginning, um, who were cooks and enslaved in the in the stables as blacksmiths who were doing this is really one of the most troubling things about how we vote and who we are, because people don't know. They just don't know who we are.
0: Letty, will you talk about that maybe just a little bit? Because... We're getting to the end of Black History Month, but it doesn't stop. So I just would like a voice from you on that because I'm sure you have like just this love hate with Black History Month that like, yes, we love a month of highlighting it, but it doesn't end. And there's so many stories like you just sharing Elizabeth Freeman's. I'd never heard of her in my life. And I, I hate that. I'm embarrassed that I have it, but just reading, it's just so fascinating. I mean, She was a great, great grandma of W.E.B. Du, Bo- e. du Bois. She's a sought-after nurse and midwife. I mean, there's countless, thousands, millions of these stories we don't know. So, Letty, I don't know. Do you want to say a little bit about that Black History Month, these stories we don't know, feelings, thoughts?
1: Yeah. actually, Actually, while Marcy was talking and while Tasha was talking, I was trying to find this on my computer because, Tasha, you mentioned LBJ, and he had a cook that people want to rave about. Okay. So I just want to talk about that for a minute, because I want to point something out to connect to what Tasha said, because it made me think of that. And I was scrambling, trying to find this on my computer. So speaking of the former president, LBJ, who is glorified because he signed the civil rights act that then America continued to try to ignore. Um, (laughs) since we're talking about him real quick to go back, he actually had a cook and her name was Zephyr Wright. And people look at this story, and I remember I first heard about her, this is years ago, it was a random picture, because we didn't even learn this kind of stuff in college. Uh, I really learned about her in graduate school when I just happened to. Um, but she was a black cook in the White House during his presidency, but even before then, because she was actually the cook for his wife whenever she went to Wiley College and because she wanted someone to cook for her. Right. So I want people to understand that. And it wasn't just like, a, oh, she wanted to go work at the White House. No, she was like still property. Right. Um, In 1942, whenever this happened. OK. And so she goes and she's at the White House, though, and people. I mean, there's like a book, I think, about this somewhere. Uh, You can look it up online. I'm like, what you're going to find, because I just did it just to test it. What you're going to find are a lot of stories that say, oh, like he really loved her and he really appreciated her as his cook. Okay, so also (laughs) there's a story. um, The day that he signed the Civil Rights Bill of 1964, LBJ, okay? He had signed it with a lot of pins because he had to go through many pins to sign this thing and, you know, different times for photo ops. Okay. Well, apparently he handed her a pin and said, and I quote, you deserve this more than anybody else. Okay. So this uh, website though, okay, that said this goes on to then say how he valued her as a person and, really loved her cooking, right? And all this stuff. So you're getting this very whitewashed idea of her servitude in the White House with this racist white man who Marcy, you had said too, right? Was He was extremely racist. Just because he signed a civil rights bill doesn't mean anything, okay? And um, I'm trying to scroll through this document, but uh, in a Time Magazine interview, the First Lady actually said how... Uh, Zephyr is an expert at spoon bread, homemade ice cream and monumental Sunday breakfasts of deer sausage, home cooked bacon, popovers, grits, scrambled eggs, homemade peach preserves and coffee Uh, in 1963 whenever uh, Johnson actually ascended to the presidency. Zephyr Wright's cooking was in newspapers from Maine to Hawaii. She was raved about, the first lady raved about her cooking and all these things, right? So there's an image that people get whenever they read history like this, if they read it from the site, this history of, oh, see, but he had her in mind when he signed the civil rights bill. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Because she also had to be there all the time and could not even talk about her civil, her civil rights activism that she was involved in, because she was involved in that. And if people take time to look at her as a person and not her as a black cook in the White House, they'll find that. I wanted to say this because this is important when we're talking about history and cooking and black women and these stories that people read that want to paint things as, oh, but see, it wasn't slavery anymore. See, she was cooking in the White House she actually had a good life. Really? That's, that's what y'all think. Like, that's really what y'all are getting out of this stuff. And it shouldn't be what it should be is you should be asking the questions of how, how did Zephyr Wright feel? Not how did she make them feel? Not how did she make these white people feel? It didn't matter. And then people want to, matter of fact, the site said that Zephyr Wright was the black cook that could stand up to LBJ and she's the only one who told him that he should stick to his diet. Okay, I'm gonna paint this picture for y'all. Y'all really think that in, I don't know, 1963, okay? The same years that John Lewis is getting almost beat to death. The same years, the same year, 65, Bloody Sunday happened the same time, whenever LBJ is fighting Dr. King against signing the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act for, for that, for just for anything, he didn't want to do any of this. He saw her as the property that was cooking for him, right? But because people look at history and they see it with these years, right? They they, they, they put these years on it and they want to say, oh, but it was Dr. King. And I forgot who said it earlier. I'm not sure, Marcy, if it was you or um, you, Tasha. But you put these years on it and they want to say, oh, but see, Dr. King. And it's like, y'all didn't even like Dr. King. Y'all didn't like him. So at the same time that these things are happening in history, you have people like Zephyr Wright, Black women, who are having to go to work and stay at this White House. Who knows what the rest of her... What, what was the rest of her life like? What did she do for leisure? What could she do? What couldn't she say? Who couldn't she associate with, right? So I just wanted to add that in. I think it's extremely important when we talk about the other part of black women, that's not discussed in these books, like Fannie Lou Hamer and others who we've talked about is there's a lot more context. And that's what actually, that's why as a historian, I always tell this stuff and I'm like, you have to see it for the bigger picture though. Because if I talk to someone about how oh, I've gotten where I've gotten, I'm not just going to say, oh, I went, I went to college, I went to grad school, and now here I am. No, there's there's context in this stuff. There's, there's a reason why I'm living where, where I'm living. There's, there's things that I've been through. And so back really to the question about Black History Month and what that means to me and how I feel about it. Yeah, it, it is. it's really this conversation today has been a culmination of how I feel about it. To be honest with you, it's it's like we we do have things like where we still see constant resistance. Like we we have the Black Lives Matter movement and people want to separate that from history and say, oh, but that's not how it was before. And I'm like, mm, actually before what happened is y'all were so scared that we were going to actually rebel that you decided you were just going to kill random black people because you were so afraid that we actually wanted to not be owned by you. Y'all even created sicknesses for it. Like diseases for like oh my gosh! But you you have this mental illness if you run run away from us. I mean, people who are listening, your grandparents or maybe your parents watched all these things happening, marches happening, people getting beaten, happening, fighting for our lives, right? Fighting for our humanity. And in the same breath that you want to glorify or want to say that you love people like Dr. King and John Lewis and all of these other civil rights leaders, people want to make movies about, Julian Bond, all of these names I can just start naming. You want to make movies about them and say that you care about them and you love them. And in the same breath... Next month, we're about to watch the white man, the white officer who killed George Floyd, not even serve a a second in prison probably. But then you want to talk about how you want to learn from history and you want to learn from Black history. Well, then learn from it and stop making us die for our humanity. That's what I want people to understand during Black History Month. If you're going to be about it, then be about it. Marcy, so where do you want to go with this? Well, I would really like to talk about the value of... A couple of things.
2: One thing that came to mind when you asked Letty the question about black history is that there's this belief that black history is, is only black history but really black history is really about the history of whiteness too. It is very much. About how it it belongs to us. I'm not saying that I want white people to be like, yay, whiteness month. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is no black history without a clear understanding of whiteness. Otherwise, you're just celebrating colored people. And I put colored like, you know, like in a Crayola box, like colored. You're not really celebrating the whole story, like Letty said. You're not, you're not celebrating people, you're celebrating a name that happens to be attached to someone who's Black. So there's this importance of understanding what it is to be white in order to see the value of Blackness. And you can't do one without the other. You can't see the value of Blackness unless you see what whiteness created, right? How, and how it was created and how it preserves and how it protects itself. I think that's what is so important about how we talk about and how we name Black women. If we name them Jemima, Sapphire, Jezebel, why all that matters is because what that's doing is preserving whiteness. That's exactly what that is. That's, that's how we preserve whiteness by saying that there are these three tropes, that there are these three categories that, white, that Black women can be in. Everything else belongs to white women. That's the important. So for me, how how white women talk about their bodies, be it their diet, be it their rec- their exercise routine, is very much a black history, and it's something that coming across the Jemima Code meant so much to me because. Mm-hmm. We're often told that our bodies are unhealthy. Our way of existing is toxic and filling our veins with cholesterol. That's not what ki- what's killing black people. What's killing black people is whiteness, 100%. That is what is killing. So if you're seeing the numbers of who has high blood pressure and who has diabetes and who has, it's not about our diet. It really isn't as much as it is about whiteness. It's, it's about food deserts. It's about the fact that Fannie Lou Hamer created this co-op and whiteness destroyed it, you know, tried to take it down. That it's never been. Black people just would buy buckets of lard and just spoon eat it. And first of all, lard can be very, very healthy. So, and we know that because if you go to Whole Foods, you see it on a little bitty jar of it that cost you about, you know, $15. So I think what we have to come to terms with is that... We have colonized the plate, we've colonized body image, we've colonized womanhood. And the only time that we are okay with a Black body is when it's on a white woman's body, Kardashian's. And it's, it's really a problematic thing and it's killing white women as much as it's killing Black women. It's killing us with names like Brianna Taylor and Sandra Bland because our bodies aren't needed for protection. So like when a, a cop decides to bust into Brianna's home, he doesn't see her like he would see a white woman in distress. He can't he can't sense that she has fear. When Sandra is going off, which she had every right to do when she was pulled over, there's nothing that she did that was illegal. When she is telling him that she's upset, that she doesn't know why he pulled her over, that she's, and he tells her to put out her cigarette. And she says, I don't have to pay out my cigarette. She doesn't. There's there is not a law against her smoking, yet it killed her. There's a book that Malcolm Gladwell wrote that I think is kind of brilliant called Talking to Strangers. Um, and it's all about how he said he doesn't want to stop thinking about Sandra Bland. He never wants to stop thinking about her and what happened. We're talking about a woman who have been that was the moment that we all saw, but she had so many moments before that moment, so many times that she was pulled over, so many times that she was fine, so many times that she, was, she, had, she had a triumph followed by whiteness and white violence, so many times. It's important as we talk about our bodies, white women, women period, Asian women, Native, whatever, that we are not colonizing our bodies with size with shape with what can and cannot go in it with identity with sexuality with there's so much that we have done to harm all women to protect whiteness and to make white men wealthy and that's what to me The Birth of the Nation was all about. They're like, well, we're going to make this film and we're going to show this film of white men dressed as as, um, saviors in sheets saving white women from Blackness. And a president showed that in the White House. And believe me, there were Black folks probably in the room serving them popcorn while they were watching Birth of the Nation. So I think we really have to be courageous and looking at ourselves and saying okay what am I subscribing to that is utter nonsense that all it does is protect whiteness and drive me crazy and it might be your need to obsess about your body because that that doesn't come out of a vacuum and it wasn't always that way it became that way the more that the more that black people got free, the more they made standards of what it was to be a woman. And they use size and they use and, you know, they use BMI now. They use all these things that have really done a disservice mostly to the peace of mind of white women, but damage real threat and violence to black women's bodies, to how we are perceived in the waiting room at the at the hospital, to how we receive care at the hospital, to how we get pain relief. All of that is because there's this belief that our bodies are different and need less protection. And as long as white women subscribe to smaller, less of a voice, being more invisible in the room, taking up less space and agreeing to that, the more I wonder how how long will it take for us to get there. My daughter and I are obsessed with trash TV. You know that, Andrea? I, I make no, I watch a lot of good TV too, but I want my daughter to see how white maleness works even when it's not explicitly saying that this is for the white male I or this is a preserving white maleness. So we watch The Bachelor and I love to listen to my my 18 almost 19 year old's comments as she watches the show. And it's funny because I'll say well if you were ever on that show you better. She's like I would never be on that show. So she'll say that and it's kind of funny but it's interesting to me this this time around because everyone went nuts. They're like they have a black bachelor And I'm like, well, yeah, he's black, but the show is still very white. I mean, make no mistakes about it. And the way that I know that is because what they did is they took the same woman within four different sizes and they just changed her ethnicity. So you have a Latin size, this and a And a white size this and a black size this and, you know, and it's all very interesting how it's based on a very white spoken idea of beauty and size and value and wifehood, who's worthy of being a wife. And it doesn't matter that he's a black bachelor. The narrative is the same that goes all the way back to who was in the kitchen and whose bodies were property and whose weren't. And we are still playing it out. It's just, it looks different, but, but make no mistakes there. It's still linked. It's still linked. And we all give in to it. Right. Um, and every now and again, you'll get a little bit of like, well, that's new bachelor. I'm proud of you or bachelorette, but At the end of the day, it's very white-powered, very white-powered. And I remember there was one of the bachelorettes, I think her name was Hannah, was slut-shamed on on it. And she she basically stood up for herself and said that she wouldn't be slut-shamed about going into the fantasy rooms and stuff and who she slept with and who she didn't sleep with. And, And white women went bonkers. But then I had white women ask me about Beyonce's Homecoming and the way that the dancers were dancing. And then you have white women falling out about J-Lo's performance at um, the Super Bowl. But Hannah B standing up for herself in those fantasy suites. Now that, that they're proud of. So it's very interesting. I, I guarantee you that had it been a Black bachelorette, she could not have said that. And it been received that way
0: know where to go with that. The bachelor wasn't on our list, Marcy. It's just really just going back
2: to to how we are approaching food, how we're approaching our bodies, because we think that we're just saying something about our bodies, but we're saying something about all bodies. We're saying something about all bodies. And I put myself in this category. I've shared with you, I've, I've had my, my struggles with body image and, you know, saying things like when I was pregnant, that all I cared about was getting back to a single digit size right after having my baby, because that's what society expected of me, or even how it's been difficult to age. It's been difficult to become Um, to be 51. It's weird to go from being expected to walk into a room and expected that white men and black men and men care that I'm there and, and how I show up to that. And, and now being this woman who feels, I hope I go in and I hope I make them uncomfortable, not comfortable you know and and so it's 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 an interesting thing but it starts with how we how we take hold of our bodies and how we take hold of our bodies is how we eat and it's interesting how we don't hold men to that standard we just we just don't i don't think anyone but Barack Obama could have been president a bl- the first black president i think it had to be someone who was tall and and healthy and articulate you know how we like to say that put that on black people with a wife that was willing to wear j crew as opposed to any other brand she couldn't wear juicy couture that's for sure and she talks about that in, a, in her book how she had that she had this think about every single thing that she was wearing in public her hair how she was showing up so when we see her get on that stage with Oprah and she's wearing gold boots gold lame boots thigh high boots Michelle Obama is telling us something about herself she couldn't show up to the inauguration wearing no gold go-go boots no she had to put the the J. Criss sweater on and and show up in a way that whiteness could perceive her. And they still had something to say about the shape of her body. Didn't matter if she was planting a garden. Didn't matter. And I think people don't know about Fannie Lou Hamer's garden because she didn't look like the girl who started Whole30, which she took from Black people. (laughs) I'm just saying.
0: (laughs) Tasha, I'd love to hear what you're thinking about all this. I want to share what I'm thinking
3: about all of this
0: um, quickly
3: uh, because L- Letty and Marcy have just talked so much about such good stuff, and I took I, I got like three pages of notes over here. Uh, and so, to sum it up, so so we we've been doing this weekly t- and talking about uh, how we're perceived and and our stories and. Just our journeys, and the thing that I, I just thought about the danger of, of a single story, and that's uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Thinking about the danger of a single story, and if you want to really get the truth of what our journey has been like as Black people or the African diaspora, or wh- whatever, you need to listen to us. Thank you, Andrea, for allowing us to be on your podcast to, to do all of this. Thank you, Marcy, and Andrea for for pairing up and you know just allowing this space, listen to us. Listen to us about our history, our experiences, even our trauma. Listen to us about our emotions and how we take in certain things that are going on for us and and to us. Listen to us about our food. Listen to us about our bodies so that this single narrative isn't being shared like what's happened throughout our history, our time, having a few people represented as, as Marcy spoke about earlier, literally you would only think that maybe five or six people have done anything for for black people. And so moving forward to um, talking about diet culture, because some of that blends into my clients that are also experiencing childhood trauma, thinking about just all of this, this whole conversation, I kind of wrote down, I said, anytime we're, whether it's binging, purging, dieting, obsessively, you know, looking at our bodies, weighing ourselves, worried about how our bodies are perceived by other people, to me, it is always a nod to white supremacy it's always a nod to oppression and uh, the tactics that have ruled this country. And so with diet culture, in my experience as a woman and as a clinician, it's always this message that you are not enough, that you will never be enough. Your body is just not good enough. Sometimes I'll tell my clients that struggle with this, you know, while you're so obsessive about losing weight, that's not the weight that you need to lose. The weight that you need to lose is societal expectations. And then it's the family expectations. And then it's the fear of, you know, what will people say? I, I've got to lose this 10 pounds. What, what what will they say about me if if I'm this other weight? And And then you also need to lose the weight of feeling unworthy and not good enough. Those are messages by white supremacists. And so even if it's showing up for white women, the basis is that it came from white men. So dismantling all of that and how we relate to our bodies often taps into um, our own emotional and like mental pain. And so, and it's either that we're not aware of it because sometimes we don't get aware of stuff until well into adulthood. And typically through therapy somehow, or we're just afraid to confront it. And then I just have one last thought that I wanted to say about that. When, when I think about either restricting food or binging or whatever, or just overindulgence of food, is the problem the food or is it childhood experiences or, or is it emotional abandonment? Or is it lack of autonomy or, or, or you know, lack of control in some area of your life? Is it, is it that you feel like your voice doesn't matter? Is it family dysfunction? There, there's so many things and food is a symbol of all of that. And so if we can just get to the, the root, Those are my
0: thoughts. I know this is speaking to Black women, but I just have to tell you, it's speaking to me too. I mean, it's falling into this white supremacy patriarchy, being okay with taking up space as a woman. One of my first tattoos, this one that says too much, that I got with my daughter, because she, as a 17-year-old, was always like, I'm just too much for people, Mom. I'm too much. Like, I'm too loud. I take up too much space. Like, just, and I, and she was, this was a couple summers ago, and I'm like, you know what? Damn it. We're going to embrace that too much. Like quit that feeling like you're too much as women. We feel like we're too much if we're louder or if we have a point of view or if we're taking up more space. So I just want to thank you guys because you're speaking to me too and reiterating what I want to be teaching our daughters that too much is okay. And there's no such thing as not enough. And so to keep taking up space. Anyway, I'm gonna, I am don't wanna go off here too because this is about you guys, but I just wanna thank you for reiterating those thoughts and being too much and loving ourselves is an act of resistance and so is joy. So we're gonna go move on to our joy and celebration question. This week, the question is, each of you were asked to pick a recipe from Tony Tipton Martin's Jubilee cookbook that we all have had that intrigues you and pick three people Black women that you'd like to invite to the table. And Marcy, do you want to go first or Tasha? In the book, there's a recipe for tea cakes. And that
3: automatically launched me into thinking about my grandmother who raised me the first six years of my life. I want to make tea cake. And then there's this quote in here about cooking is a grand form of of giving. And, And I just thought about how so often for families, food is or cooking is like the ultimate like love and it reminded me of growing up and how she would a million times I would say I don't want anything I don't want any food I'm good I'm good and she she always wanted to feed me and she wasn't happy until I got a plate of food but I knew that that was her just loving on me in that way and so it it was okay the three people I can't think of who I would want to invite except for you guys because we're having this conversation plus Mm -hmm. Patricia wherever you are Patricia that's who I would want at my table
0: so that's my answer I love that I love that you saw that when you text me that day that you're like I just saw a recipe that my grandma made yeah I love that and just remembering her and your ancestors through food and those yeah. memories thank you Tasha Letty do you want to share? yeah so I was I was trying to
1: pick between Can I have like three post-it notes sitting here um I was trying to pick because I kind of try to pick something from each section. I couldn't quite decide like from each one of the sections because this book is amazing. Like between this book and the taste of country cooking, I just really felt a lot of ancestral guidance. Just a lot of things that make so much sense to me now with my grandparents and like my family, right? But I would say (laughs) hot water cornbread, because it's something that my grandma used to talk about and I'm named after my, my grandma. So it's like very special. And I remember it being something so simple because we grew up kind of eating Jiffy cornbread out of the boxes. It was just the easiest, right? I learned how to make Jiffy when I was like eight. It was like, oh, an egg and water, great. Um, <laughs> but hot water cornbread, I remember my grandma mentioned it once and my mom mentioned it before. And it's just the story with that kind of thing and how black people have always been extremely, we've always been so innovative. So innovative. And it's something, and just this is just real, real quick, but I wanted to add, it's Marcy, whenever you're talking before about food, right? We think about veganism and things, and how veganism now is so trendy. And you, you know, many people imagine like a thin white man or woman or someone who is identifying as, oh, I'm I'm vegan and I'm healthy. And it's like, right, but that was us. It's our African root. And this is something that was new to me. It was very new to me. Uh, whenever I saw an Afro vegan cookbook, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like We can still have really good food and be vegan, right? And so it was it's even made me question some things about my food choices and, and stuff like that. But anyway, as far as who I would invite, I would honestly invite right now today where I am, I would invite y'all. Because prior to this podcast being recorded, we had a divine conversation. And that's who I would want to invite. That's that's where, like right now in this moment, absolutely, that's who I would want to invite. If I had to pick people who were famous or something like that, definitely Angela Davis. Definitely Angela Davis. <laughs> because honestly, right. Angela Davis, uh, I would also have to say... Michelle Obama. Uh, definitely Michelle Obama. And I would want to just find someone in a grocery store and ask them if they want to eat with us. Mm-hmm. Because it's not always about the famous people. And, and it's not about that all the time. But it's about also like, oh, I, I have this opportunity. Let, let me pull someone else in that doesn't have this opportunity.
0: I love that. Marcy, you want to share
2: with us? Yeah, well, to piggyback off of these wonderful women, of course, all of you, including Patricia. And I also would have to invite my sisters. Y'all would love them. Y'all would love my sisters. So that's just a given. They're already at the table, you know, um, and, and your sisters and family can be at the table, too. So we'll just set that table. I... Uh, I actually made the sweet potato pie with praline topping for Thanksgiving, and it was everything. It was so good, right? And I'm not a baker. I can cook, and I love cooking, but I do not bake, and because I don't have time to wonder if something's going to turn out right, and I don't have any control over it, so and that's what baking is to me. I'm like, you mean I spend... All this time and then i just let the oven do the work like I can't, I can't even i'm like and i can't do anything to fix it if it's messed up so um i made the um sweet potato pie with pra- praline topping and here's the thing why i want to make it for and especially have my sisters there i called my sister about her sweet potato pie and she doesn't write recipes down. My mother didn't write recipes down. My grandma didn't write recipes down. And so when they tell you a recipe, it's like, well, you eat yourself three or four sweet potatoes, kind of big. How big? Just kind of big. And then you'll need butter. How much? A stick? Maybe two. Um, How much brown sugar? How much this or that? So I, I told my sister that she was telling me how to make our sweet potato pie. Right. And so I said to her, well, I'm going to make this recipe and it has a praline topping on top of it. And she said, oh, mm, I guess that's okay. Because there is this thing, and I know white women have heard, you know, like, we don't want you to bring the potato salad with the raisins to the picnic. I've been to a lot of picnics and I've not had to suffer through potato salad with raisins in it, but I've not actually gone to picnics where white people have made the potato salad that I've grown up on either, but I haven't had raisins in it yet. I've had some funny things in potato salad, but... It's funny how I think it's, I would love to do this pie because I know that at the table, pralines are very Southern and very, but to put them together, I would just love to hear the conversation of the women watching me as I made this. And I would want it to be Fannie Lou Hamer. And I I want women who are a little bit, I don't want tame women at the table. I want some wild women at the table because my sisters are wild. I think you are wild women. So I would want, Sani Lou Hamer, I would definitely want Ava Duvernay. I think she's, I think the way that she tells stories is, is so amazing. And I would want Mother Angelou at the table, because I'm, you know, gotta bring some people from the dead. And um, and I think if I had to pick another woman, I would want, I'm torn between Harriet Tubman at the table. But this is part of me, it just feels like Harriet might be too holy for me to have at this dinner party. And she might make me feel like I can't be myself. But I want these women who are at the party watching me put this praline topping on top of this um, pie before I bake it, just to watch them kind of flip out and be like, you know, girl, what you doing with that that? Pr- that don't go on top of the pot. And like, and to surprise them when I take this beautiful pie out the oven and it works because that was the thing. I had to take a picture of my pie when I was done and show it to my sister, like it worked, but just that, that feeling of having women in the kitchen watching you put, cause I've had the, I, I don't like cooking in front of my sisters because they love to like watch me in the kitchen cook when they've come to visit. And there's nothing more terrifying than to have your sister going, is that how you're going to roast that pepper? Okay. Well, that's a way, or, you know, is that how much you're going to put that? That's how much salt you're going to put in. Okay. All right. I guess that'll work. You know, I just want to be in control and to be the one saying, no, you sit down, pour yourself some coffee, Maya, get yourself your glass of sherry or whatever you need. And, um, let me just make the pie and bring it. To the table, and y'all just have to accept what I bring. So that's who I would love to have at the table.
0: Love that, Mercy. And I know this question really wasn't for me, but I just oh no, to you need the answer, answer too. I just want you to know that I mark sweet potato pie. Oh, with the plate, but now I don't have to make it because I'm going to come to your party. <laughs> I do want to make that. I love pumpkin pie, and this is no joke. I still like make one pumpkin pie a week because it's like my favorite thing. But I've never made sweet potato pie, so. I, I'm going to try this one. Innovated
2: make this recipe. It's okay. so good. If you are a pecan pie lover and a praline lover and you like
0: sweet potatoes, it, it's so... I love sweet potatoes. so, it's so okay. good. Okay, I'm still going to make it, but I'm just going to come to your party where you, <laughs> where you made it. But you know what I will bring, because I also marked this because I think it's fascinating, was the coffee. I'm going to bring the Calypso coffee. Yeah! On page 66, because yeah. I love coffee and... I think it's fascinating. Also, coffee originated in Ethiopia, like they talk about in this Jubilee book. But obviously, when the Americans took that away from the enslaved African-Americans, brought them here, they didn't have their coffee. And how ingenious they were, because the enslaved, they came up with cornmeal scorched in a kettle, boiled it, and sweetened it with molasses, to supplement not having their coffee. And that I think is just amazing because it shows again how ingenious they were to thrive and survive and come up with their own, they called it quote, Lincoln coffee parched cornmeal in the oven. Then they'd add if they had things to add to it, but they parched sweet potatoes, acorns, grains, okra, all the things, whatever they had to make their coffee. That's my answer. I think this book is just incredible. If people didn't buy Jubilee, they need to buy it and look at these stories make these recipes. Ladies, we're out of time, but I know we could keep talking, but I just, again, wanna thank you guys so much for coming, giving your time, sharing your voices, allowing me to listen and learn from you all. Thank you, this has been great. Marcy. Thank I'm just you. so glad that you asked me to host you guys and that you had this idea, and I just appreciate you and your voice so much.
2: I can't tell y'all how blessed I've just been with Letty and Tasha and you and um, Patricia, I mean, you live for this kind of a moment because we're busy in our lives and you don't often, and in this pandemic, it's really hard for people to have true, meaningful conversations. And I think, I think, I, I imagine that, I, I said earlier, I imagine women who really are craving this kind of conversation, listening in. And I just want you to know, we're we're so happy that you're here. We're, we're so happy that you're here. And I hope that it encourages other women to go. I think, I hope that people take, decide to get Jubilee and go have a, a cookbook club. Y'all can cook some recipes, get together on Zoom, talk about what you made. Just, I just feel that I wanna see women eating for themselves and not for anyone, not for the white gaze, not for the male gaze, not for the partner gaze, just just to eat for yourself, to eat because you're you can, not even because you're hungry, but just because you can, because you're alive, because it's a gift. I hope that this encourages women to do that.